Hi, I'm Dr. Alan Brown, immediate past president of the National Lipid Association, and I'm here today with Dr. Kim Bircher, who is a clinical professor at the University of Houston School of Pharmacy. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, so Kim, I know that you have many areas of expertise, but you have a passion for the whole prior authorization issue. <laughs> and this has been on the radar screen of not just the Lipid Association, not just most doctors in the country, but even the American College of Cardiology has had a couple of summits on uh, prior auth related to multiple classes of drugs from new heart failure drugs to PCSK9 inhibitors. So since this is a National Lipid Association, Discussion today will probably focus a little bit on PCSK9 inhibitors and maybe get your thoughts on some of the newer drugs that are going to be coming out in the near term. So let's start with a little bit about the scope of the problem and some of the data. Can you help our listeners understand? Absolutely. So we, we know that the prior authorization process saves insurance companies money. That, you know, there is data that supports that. However, the process is burdensome. It takes a lot of time. Clinicians in the office are having to spend time with paperwork rather than spending time with patients. Patients get discouraged by the process. Either they decide, you know, this is just too much trouble, or by the time you get it approved, they decide maybe it's too expensive or it's something they don't want to take. You know, so it, it seems like it's a constant massage, you know, trying to get the patient on the medication, keep them on the medication, affect their outcomes. And I have to say, as co-director of a service line for a large healthcare system, it costs us a lot of money. The, the amount of paperwork that we have to do, the time that, and staff that are engaged in doing the prior auth. So I'd like you to tell us a little bit about what the impact on patients is. You implied that they don't always want to follow through. And I know that the physician's sort of intention to write prescriptions drops when they have a drug that it takes a significant amount of prior auth. Right. Is that correct? And do we have data on that? Like what's well, the magnitude? It, there, there is some data that the prior authorization process leads to non-adherence long-term, you know, especially if the cost is high to the medications, it seems like patients are less adherent especially long-term. We know that if a clinic will designate a person to do the prior authorizations, that person is able to develop some expertise. They become familiar with the insurance companies, what is covered on their plan, ballpark, what the copay is, if they have to do one PCSK9 inhibitor before the other, that sort of thing. So I think that helps. I think we're getting better at it, but it is still very burdensome. And then even if you get it approved, you know, I find oftentimes our, our patients, especially our, our Medicare Part D patients, their copays are higher than the patients who can get the copay card because the Medicare Part D, the government plans, aren't eligible for the copay cards. So in addition to the prior authorization, they have to go through that patient assistance application process, and that can take some time. Here again, delaying the therapy. Okay, well, those are all painful experiences that many of us have had. One of the things that's happened in the last couple of years, which I think is unprecedented, is that the companies that made the PCSK9 inhibitors dropped their retail price by about 60%. And since Medicare copays are directly related to the actual WAC price, 
Right. Uh, that helped our Medicare patients quite a bit. But I don't have any real insight on how much that changed the prior auth. I think the goal was to say, okay, you know, we're going to drop the price, and hopefully that will improve access. Do you have any information on whether that sort of unprecedented move it made a difference for patients. I, I think it did make a difference. However, I can only speak for the plans that I work with in, in the Houston area. Our most popular plan, the patient's required to pay 32% of the, the cost. So if the retail price is about $500, the patient ends up paying about 170 a month. That's quite a bit difference than 32% of 1500 mm -hmm. you know, what the drug cost before. So it has made an impact. However, $170 a month can still be very expensive for some of our patients. Yes, particularly Medicare patients. Yes. I mean, I have seen that some of our Part D patients have dropped a lot. It could be as high as 125 but it could be as little as 25 or $50. My perception, and maybe you have more solid data on this, is that it has gotten easier to get these drugs approved. And since they've moved out of a specialty tier, you can go to the pharmacy and pick them up. Again, my perception is that there have been fewer barriers, and in many cases, easier forms. Now, I live in Illinois. Our Blue Cross program was one of the toughest mm -hmm. to get anything prescribed through, but I'm curious what right. your experience is in Texas. You know, I'm still seeing um, the forms of varying length. So the simplest form is one page, and they say, does the patient have clinical ASCBD or do they have FH? And you check the box and you turn it in. You, you say, are they on a statin? Are they on a zetamide? And you check those boxes and you turn it in. Most of the plans, though, that I'm working with still, the forms are three to four pages. And the, the print is like in font number eight, you know, so they're hard to read. There's lots of lines. It's very easy to skip, you know, some of the questions just because the way the forms are formatted. My perception is, yes, it is easier, but I think that's because we've developed some expertise in answering the questions, pulling together the information that's required to go in with the prior OS. So I, I don't know necessarily that it is easier, but I think because we're more familiar with the process, that makes it easier. Yeah, I agree completely with your earlier statements that by having a staff that really knows how to appropriately fill out the forms, we helped expedite the process. And I also think that the payers get to know whether you are doing appropriate prescriptions or not. And I'm sure that the ability to get those prescriptions approved may have something to do with whether or not they recognize that you are a knowledgeable prescriber. Early on, I heard several of the payers at some meetings that we had state that main reason that drug isn't being approved is because of improper paperwork or not answering questions according to the label. That had not been my experience early on. I answered those questions perfectly, you know what? <laughs> but I, I still got a lot of them denied. I think what has helped us too is we leverage the medical record to help us. So with our particular system, we uh, have a snapshot, and on that snapshot, it has medical problems. It has a little bit of drug history. It has the medication list. It has some lab history on there. And what I found is on some of the diagnostic codes, when rather than just picking the default value and leaving the detail there, say for instance, you pick family history of premature coronary artery disease, 
I think it helps to go ahead and say, who was the family member? What was the age? If you pick familial hypercholesterolemia, put which definition you use. Did you use the AHA definition? Did you use Simon Broom criteria? Did you do the Dutch lipid score? And you put that number there. And then if the patient had personal premature disease, here again, what happened and put their age. The other thing we've been adding is using the code for statin intolerance. And on the detail, I'll say which statins, if I know doses, you know, for instance, I'll say had intolerable muscle symptoms reversed with discontinuation recurred with rechallenge, and it's there on the problem list. So in, in six months, a year, when we have to do the prior off again, that information is already there. No one's going to have to go flipping back through the chart. It's on the snapshot. The med list is there. So the insurance company can see if they're on a statin, they can see the dose, they can see if they're on azetamide, they can see which PCSK9 inhibitor we're trying to use, and then we have a little bit of lab history. And I like to write on this piece of paper that I'm sending in and actually mark next to the lab, this was statin only, this was statin with azetamide, this was statin, azetamide, and PCSK9 inhibitor. So I make it really easy for that person who's reviewing it at the insurance company, really easy for them to find it. Well, that's exactly what they're asking for. And you make such an excellent point. And I think maybe to our listeners, they think, well, I don't have time to write all that stuff down. But just a clinical pearl that I've experienced over the years, the time to find out all that information is when the patient is in front of you, not when you're going to try and get the prior off. Patients know exactly what statins they've been on. They can tell you what the side effects were. You can quickly look up the most recent LDL Mm -hmm. cholesterol, right, and make sure there's one within 30 days on the chart. You can, or should at least, if you're going to call the patient a familial hypercholesterolemic patient, you should be able to support that, whether it be Mm -hmm. by genetic testing or by Dutch criteria or Simon Broom criteria. And I will say that... We have increased our genetic testing in the office dramatically because uh, if the genetic test comes back positive, you don't have any issue with getting authorization. So I just remind everybody, ask these questions while they're in your office. Put them in your note. No matter what electronic record you have, if you document those things, then it'll be much easier if you get a denial to be able to support peer-to-peer review or whatever you need to do. So, so something we else, else we did with the medical record, leveraging that, I created a smart phrase that contains their risk according to the guideline and stating that they're high risk for an ASCVD event. I have a bullet for statin, azetamide, PCSK9 inhibitor, what I know about the insurance, and it all comes up in one smart phrase. So I'm not doing multiple smart phrases. It's it's like dot ASCVD, high, very high risk, and, and it yes, brings and everything up. So if you have Epic, I'm sure you could get your folks in your institution to add that in. Also, I might point out that NLA has a care sheet that actually yes. gives you a rundown of the questions that you should answer while the patient's there that will help you with the prior auth. I think there's a couple others out there. ASPC also has one. Mm-hmm. And then I would encourage our listeners to look at those if you don't have a sophisticated medical record. But in our institution, as I'm sure in yours, the EPIC folks will, will make those smart phrases Absolutely. for you if you're not a wizard at it. Right. And, and it's very easy to share them within a system. Anything about just the landscape of healthcare? I mean, I'm older than you, but 
35 years doing this has led me to see that things are changing. You know, as we move to value, Mm -hmm. uh, where probably we're going to receive a fixed amount for covered life. Right. And where the cost of medications is actually going to be on us. We'll be taking that risk. But the days of if something was a better treatment than anything else available at any cost that was approved, those days are long gone now. Even drugs that have been proven to be better than all the current guideline-based therapy are restricted in the Mm -hmm. sense that you, you need to go through the prior authorization. So do you have any thoughts on that, where you think things are going in the future and value proposition of drugs versus the the retail prices? Boy, that's a tough question. I think it's going to get harder, not easier. And I think we're going to have more prior authorizations because the newer drugs here again will be expensive uh, to the health system. So there needs to be the right selection of the patient for the therapies so there is that value. I don't know if there's an easy answer to any of this. You know, part of being here at this conference and hearing about the newer therapies coming out, you know, I wonder how it will mesh, you know, with them currently not in the guideline. You know, we're going to have a period of time where maybe we don't have outcomes data. We don't have the answers we need to make solid clinical decisions. I think it's going to be tough. And, and I think we're going to have to work together multiple clinicians coming together, best scientists, you know, the best clinicians, the patients coming together and figuring out what's important. The thing is, too, adherence is always at the top uh, of the list. You know, we know that if a patient doesn't take the medication, they're not going to reap the benefit of it. And I think sometimes we need to think about how we can affect that as well as healthcare providers. And I don't know what the answer is to that. I know simpler regimens is important, but this mix of creating a difficult process and making it harder for patients to get the medications makes me a little bit nervous when you think about adherence long term. Yeah, I, I definitely share your nervousness. I, my perception is as we consolidate into just a few healthcare organizations across the country, the negotiations for the price of drugs are going to fall under the healthcare system rather than patient and their insurer. Right. You know, there'll be a more global negotiation for the cost of medications. And that will maybe turn out to be a positive because we'll look at the, the value of the medication, look at decreasing morbid events, mm-hmm. but also reducing costs for the overall healthcare system as we move towards this more capitated value-based system. And it just doesn't make sense then to be, you know, arguing about price with a, a particular insurer. So I'm a little bit optimistic that this will be done on a large scale, whether it's on a national scale or on a healthcare system scale. And that will drive the cost down based on large numbers of patients being able to receive the appropriate therapy. But there will be a lot of scrutiny on the absolute benefit of therapy and the value that it brings for the cost. And Mm -hmm. I think the old days of whatever cost, if it's good, we'll pay for Mm -hmm. it, are gone. Any final thoughts on that? I agree. And, you know, we do have some models where health systems are part of buying groups and they get contracted prices on medications and things like that. So I think it's only logical that this will be extrapolated to include the newer medications. 
Well, thank you very much, Dr. Bircher, for your insights on this. Nobody has any real answers, but what you really helped us with is some of the ways that you could streamline the ability to put the appropriate documentation in the chart and how important appropriate documentation is to give you a better chance of providing the right medications to your patients. So thanks a lot for being here. You're welcome. I've enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks.